welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm happy to have you tuning in, listening, and downloading. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Christian Barton. He is both a researcher and clinician treating sports and musculoskeletal patients in Melbourne. He is a postdoctoral research fellow and the communications manager at the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Center. His research is focused on the knee, running injuries, and knowledge translation, including the use of digital technology. He is also on the board of the Victorian branch of the Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy Association and a guest lecturer at Latrobe University and the University of Melbourne. He is currently studying a Master of Communication focusing on journalism innovation. He is an associate editor and deputy social media editor at the British Journal of Sports Medicine, as well as associate editor at Physical Therapy in Sport. And in today's podcast... We talk about a paper he co-authored, How Can We Implement implement Exercise Therapy for Patellofemoral Pain If We Don't Know What Is Prescribed, a Systematic Review. And we have links to this and everything else that we spoke about under this episode at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So if you want to get any of the resources we talked about, one click from that page will take you to to all the links that we talked about today. So uh, thanks so much again for joining, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Christian Barton. Hey, Christian, welcome back to the podcast. And as I said in the intro today, we're going to be talking about exercise for patellofemoral pain. So let's just get right to it. Does exercise work for patellofemoral pain? Hi, Karen. Thanks very much for having me. Um, We certainly do have some really good evidence that exercise is effective for patellofemoral pain. Our last review, which we did with Sinead Holden um, and co over in Denmark, shows us that we have at least 38 trials that would support that exercise therapy is something we should be implementing for patellofemoral pain. We also have some recommendations, both from a best practice guide, which we published in BGSM a few years ago, that exercise is possibly the, the key intervention along with education, and is also something that's strongly recommended by the International Patellofemoral Pain Research Network. So I think it's time that we start to, to use this in clinical practice as much as possible. And so I know when people say exercise, that encompasses a lot of different things. So what type of exercises should be provided? Yeah, so this is where it gets really interesting because, um, the, as you said, there's many different types of exercise. We can we can do exercise like go for a run or go for a walk. We can do exercise like play tennis or play various other sports. Um, we, we can also do more therapeutic exercise. And what's really interesting is when you look to the literature in patellofemoral pain, we we have a lot of trouble determining exactly what types of exercises we should be should be doing. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. What we do know from the current research is that the exercise that probably should be provided is primarily hip and knee um, based on current evidence and a nice systematic review which we produced with Simon Lack and the group at Queen Mary University of London 
a year or two ago now shows us that probably even in the early stages that hip might be more effective than knee for both reducing pain and also improving function. And that's quite an interesting thing to think about because um, traditionally exercise have focused on VMO and the knee and, and quadriceps muscle strength and function. But perhaps by targeting the hip in the early stages, we might actually improve the outcomes. And there's a few reasons we could speculate for that. There's obviously some some evidence growing and emerging relating to the importance of the hip to patellofemoral pain kinematics and, and also to patellofemoral function. But also it might be that perhaps these individuals that we see in our clinics with patellofemoral pain, part of the problem is they're just overloading their knee and there may very well be strength and muscle deficits at both the knee and hip. But if we continue to do knee-based exercise, we may actually contribute more to that overload. So it might actually be that in the early stages, focusing on the hip where there is likely to be muscle function deficits, that that might actually help us to improve symptoms, improve pain. It might be distraction technique. It could be a number of different things, but it's probably just taking that overload away a little bit as well. Now, in saying that, in the longer term, it's certainly both recommendations from experts around the world, but also this comes across strongly in the literature, is that probably combining both hip and knee exercises in the long term will also lead to better outcomes. So just because you start with the hip doesn't mean you don't go to the knee at some point, but it might be a matter of settling their symptoms down first. And how many patients do you feel like clinicians are seeing in the very early stages? Because oftentimes people will let this pain go for quite some time. Yeah, I think it's I think it's quite rare that you you see patients in the early stages. I think a lot of times patients, especially if you've got your, your runners and your athletes, will, will often put up with this for a number of weeks or a number of months. And at the beginning, their, their pain might only happen occasionally. So it might happen during a, a tournament or, or during a heavy period of training. And then what happens is they, they rest back and they reduce their loads a little bit and it feels a bit better. And then it starts to happen more and more frequently as, as they go along. And often it's many months or, or sometimes years down the track where they actually consult a, a clinician for, for management. And so if you're getting these patients in more a, a later stage of patellofemoral pain, do you then want to just continue sort of starting with the hip and then move into the knee or just kind of attack from all angles? Yeah, so I think my clinical experience is um, we really don't want to give patients too many exercises at once to begin with. Um, we've got to, got to spend a lot of time educating them about other things like load management and other self-management strategies they can do. And sometimes that in itself is a lot of information for them to take and implement, let alone an exercise program. So I think if we give too many exercises, that can be quite problematic. And I tend to try and stick to just two or three exercises at most uh, when I'm prescribing to patients. And in a lot of cases, that will just focus on the hip because it'll it'll improve um, some muscle function there without any likelihood that we're going to irritate their symptoms. And often I'll work on something related to, to movement pattern to begin with. So trying to teach them to maybe move a little bit better, especially if that can help reduce their pain during something like a standing up from sitting task or walking up or down stairs or, or running for that matter. And that might actually be one of their two or three exercises actually changing the way they move. You know, now that we're talking a little bit more about exercise, how can it be optimized? Because as we said earlier, there are so many possibilities of exercise to choose from. Yeah. So this is something we've sort of thought about for a long time and, and played with a lot. And more recently, we, we've just completed a systematic review and related to patellofemoral pain, which Sinead Holden led. She's from Unit for General Practice in Orborg. And what we looked at is 
what is the current evidence around exercise therapy in terms of what is prescribed? We already have some systematic reviews, both Cochrane and also published in BGSM that support exercise, but we wanted to have a good understanding about the key prescription principles that might dictate whether exercise um, helps. And we looked at this not just using traditional checklists like the Tidia, which is more more simple reporting, but we actually used the Toigo and Votulia criteria, which is a list of 13 items. It's a really geeky paper for anyone that wants to read it. I've read but it. But what it does it. You've read it? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a fun paper to read. Mm-hmm. I think it, I read it four or five times first before I understood it. But what it does is it gives us 13 items in there that will determine the physiological responses to exercise. So this is not necessarily pain, but the physiological responses. If we want to see things like muscle hypertrophy or muscle strength gains or muscle power gains or improvements with specific tasks, it gives us 13 items we can critique papers against. Now, we did this for 38 RCTs related to patellofemoral pain, and not a single trial reported in the literature actually reported all of these items. And in fact, the most reported item was still still only around about 50% of studies reported that item, and that was load magnitude. So studies seem to consistently report the duration of their exercise programs, possibly a number of times a week, but they really poorly report things like the time under tension that the muscle might be under, also thinking about things like um, not just load magnitude, but the rest between sets, which is going to be important to determine whether we're going to get likely power gains or strength gains. Do we push a muscle to failure? What sort of range of motion are we working the exercises in? So all these things which will determine our physiological response and really not well reported in the literature. So if we consult the literature and try and answer your question about how to optimise exercise, it's really quite challenging to do that and we don't really have a, a great deal of understanding. But we can look at other literature and we can think about exercise prescription principles to do that. So what we did as part of the paper is we actually produced a guide for clinicians and this will be available freely online and it's on the International Patellofemoral Research Network website and will also be part of the virtual edition we're putting together for BJSM. And what this goes through is some of those 13 items and, and talks about how we might target neuromotor function, how we might target strength, how we might target power. Um, and considerations around that. And we know, based on a lot of research, that people with telfemoral pain will have neuromotor function issues, and we're not just talking about VMO onset here. We're also talking about hip muscle function, where we see delays and shorter duration of gluteal muscles, for example. We also see strength deficits, and that's been really widely reported, um, both isometric and, and concentric and eccentric. And more recently, we have emerging evidence that would suggest we have power deficits as well. So that's the ability of a muscle to generate force at a certain speed. And what's really interesting, PhD student of mine, uh, Guy Nunes, has done some nice work in this space, and we see bigger power deficits at the hip than what we see strength. And when we go back to the literature around exercise programs that have been published, actually only one of the 14 trials we did a bit of an audit on um, in, at the hip had actually worked to a level of doing power and actually very few studies even do strength despite having strength in their title. So I think at the moment we have poor ability to use RCTs to decide what exercise but they do give us great evidence that exercise works and we need to think more about the, the strength principles that we might be, be considering to, to prescribe exercise. And why are those power deficits so um, meaningful when it comes to, you know, everyday function for people, whether it be an athlete or just your recreational athlete? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really good question. So 
if we go to a running based athlete, which we see a lot of runners with patellofemoral pain, then the contact time on average is close to about 0.3 of a second. Um, so when you're running, you're going to have your foot in contact with the ground for about 0.3 of a second. If you halve that and go sort of foot strike to mid stance, you're looking at about 0.15 or even less. So that's the time that the muscles through our kinetic chain have have to absorb the loads that we might be requiring of them. So we're talking about hip muscle function like gluteals, quadriceps, but also a calf and other muscles which might absorb loads. So if you don't have the ability to generate force quickly in order to do that, so we're not talking about peak force, but just generate some force, then you're going to have a lot of trouble absorbing those loads. And if you have a lot of trouble absorbing those loads, there's going to be a lot more stress on on other structures and other tissues like the patellofemoral joint. And when we look at a lot of the muscle function testing that's been done previously in literature and is often done even clinically using things like handheld dynamometers, that's looking at peak force and it's often generated over a period of time. So it'll be a five second hold, for example, and how well that replicates back to function is really questionable. Some people might argue that um, not everyone needs high rate of force development because they're not putting the same forces as say running, for example, because they're not runners and they have problems with stairs and also walking. But even walking, if we look at that, we're looking around 0.6 or 0.7 of a second of contact with the ground. So again, it's still much, much shorter in, in terms of their the need to generate force rapidly. So I think that's something that's often really importantly missed within our clinical practice and, and our exercise prescription. Uh, oftentimes you have patients coming to you with a lot of fear around movement in general. So it's yeah. phobia. So can you address that? Yeah, for sure. And I think this is the thing. So when I'm thinking about my exercise prescription, I tend to think about broad categories about what that patient might need in that particular point in time. And if they've got fear of movement, that's going to be the first thing that you need to address. We know that pain will change the way someone moves. And we know, we see this in patellofemoral literature, for example, people walking up and down stairs, they'll tend to have a slower step rate. So their cadence is slower, but they also tend to flex their knee less. So they actually flex that a little bit less. And is that going to be dictated by strength? Probably not. It's probably going to be more related to their fear of actually moving. When I do some presentations on this, I have a great example of my little boy who's two years old and he's running around the museum, literally running, trying to run up escalators, etc. And then I have a video in the same video the same day and he gets to a plate of glass at the museum and there's some dinosaur bones under the plate of glass and he starts to go across the plate of grass and all of a sudden he's limping like someone who's got knee pain because he's walking really tentatively because he's worried about falling through the glass. So that fear of pain changes the way we move and that's something we often need to address in the early stages a practical tip i have for people around that if we use something simple like stairs one easy thing you can do is just have a graded exposure approach and sometimes just starting with a really thin book and doing a step up or step down onto that and tackling that fear getting them into a position where they can do the task but in a simpler form and gradually then making it harder so we start with a thin book we then go to a thicker book go to a thicker book again maybe we stack a few books on top of each other and over a number of weeks you can tackle that fear avoidance and and get them doing normal stairs quite quite easily without doing any i guess more traditional exercise science type prescription. Once we've tackled that, then I think the the next thing we also need to think about is is muscle function. And there's no point us going straight to strength and power if there's a lot of neuromotor control issues. So one of the things that we often see in patients with patellofemoral pain, they might have impaired gluteal muscle function, for example. And if we test their hip strength, say an abduction hip strength exercise or an abduction hip strength test, they might not use their gluteal muscles for that, for example. So they may actually go into a lot of flexion or try and push into flexion so they can use their anterior hip muscles. They may use a lot of lateral thigh, including both quadriceps and, and hamstrings. So 
for me, it's often about getting that neuromotor function right first. That's really important, and that can be done really quickly within a within a week or two. But then it's really vital that we then move on to building the muscular endurance, and then building muscular strength, and then eventually working to power. So we kind of need to stage those those processes. And one of the key limitations when we go to the literature is that actually a lot of these programs only go for eight to twelve weeks, and eight to twelve weeks is not going to be long enough to lead to decent muscle hypertrophy changes. And we know that there's muscle atrophy in these individuals it's also not going to lead to big strength gains and it's certainly not going to give you enough time to potentially address things like rate of force development and muscle power so with our patients in our clinical practice in the early stages we really really need to educate them if they've had this condition for five or ten years or even longer there's likely to be some muscle function deficits that's going to take quite a period of time for them to address and red theraband at home's not going to do it we need to actually progress them towards maybe gym-based rehab or at least doing heavy resistance type training at home. And what are your thoughts around blood flow restriction with these patients? Are you using it or not using it? Are, are there is there any literature to support? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So blood flow restriction is something that's been used a lot in, I guess, bodybuilding. And I think the great thing about it is you can build potentially muscle hypertrophy and augment that without having to take uh, things like steroids and, and other supplements. So the concept of blood flow restriction is to restrict blood flow so you make the muscle work in a hypoxic environment. And then as part of that, we then potentially lead to greater muscle hypertrophy changes. In the patellofemoral literature, there, there's one recent RCT which was published in PHSM, which is by Lockie Giles, one of, um, well, he's now postdoc, um, but he did his PhD here at La Trobe University. And what he did is he randomized two groups, one to receive blood flow restriction and one to receive traditional quadriceps resistance training. Now, the outcomes generally overall over over the period of eight weeks they did the trial for were pretty similar between the two groups but what they did find is that the group who did blood flow restriction training had less pain during adls so possibly some small improvements compared to traditional quadriceps training but interestingly they did do some subgroup analysis which they weren't quite powered for but it's interesting to think about and they looked at the group who actually had significant pain during things like resisted static contraction of the quadriceps and those who had pain during that so potentially muscle inhibition they tended to do much better with blood flow restriction training compared to traditional quadriceps training so i was actually lucky enough or, or happy enough to volunteer our clinic as part of that trial so it started to play around with this a couple of years ago and what i found anecdotally is that probably fits with that in that you probably don't need to worry and go there with most patients but patients who do have a lot of trouble loading their quadriceps because of patellofemoral pain when you get to that point then blood flow restriction can be really quite helpful for those individuals but there's certainly a lot of water to go under the bridge and a lot more research needed before we can strongly recommend in clinical practice but yeah. for the clinician out there who has some resistance training knowledge and would like to implement it it's certainly worth trying and having a go at what are your clinical take-homes? So for all of the clinicians listening and they're treating these patients with patellofemoral pain and using exercise therapy, what are your take-homes for them? Yeah, so I think the, the number one thing when it comes to exercise and exercise therapy is, is getting load management right at the beginning. So regardless of any exercise that we might prescribe them, if we don't manage their expectations regarding load management and get them behaving more sensibly, then we're going to have a lot of difficulty improving improving their function and improving their pain. So that's the number one thing. And then our exercise, we need to be really cautious in the early stage that we're not actually overloading these patients. So this can be particularly a problem in uh, groups like adolescents with patellofemoral pain where they may not 
might be a lot of strength deficits and is more about load management. So sometimes not prescribing exercise therapy can be appropriate. But those who have had pain for a long time, then they're probably going to have significant muscle function deficits and we're going to need to prescribe exercise. So I think starting at hip is really safe and, and making sure you only provide maybe two or three exercises at the beginning. But then progressing those exercises from addressing things like fear of movement and addressing things like uh, neuromotor function and making sure at some point, at least within the first few weeks, that you're working into muscular endurance and then working into strength and then working towards power. And I think ultimately you need to treat the patient in front of you. So some patients will have distal muscle function deficits, which we don't really have research on, and you might need to address those. Um, so just making sure that you're addressing the deficits that they have. Um, and in the, the longer term, if we want to address muscle function deficits, it's probably educating the patient and making sure you follow through with a long-term exercise plan for them. And that possibly mean sometimes 12 months 18 months even a couple of years of them doing exercise and not just giving them exercise as a, a task they need to do every day but getting it into a program where they do it two or three times a week and they have it as part of their lifestyle and the other thing to educate your patients about is doing things like resistance training which might help their pain is also going to help their quality of life it's also going to help potentially um, manage things like cardiovascular disease and manage things like diabetes and allow them to function a lot more um, and I think longer term, as long as you can educate your patient early, in the early stages about these things, then you should get good buy into doing exercise. And the final thing is education and exercise are the key things. It's also making sure that patients take this on board and you stop them looking for the, the quick fixes like trying to realign joints or trying to get an injection or in particular, making sure that they understand that something like a knee arthroscopy is not going to help them and that's really important. And if exercise is not working in the early stage for you, then think really carefully about how you might modify that exercise and if it continues not to work for you, maybe bring in someone else who has some different knowledge related to exercise because at some point you'll probably find that magic ingredient that will, will get them on the right track. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for all those take-home tips. And just a quick recap, so we want to manage expectations right off the bat, address any fear of movement, start with some no neuromotor deficits, muscular endurance, work on strength, work on power, and make sure you have that long-term plan in place, really emphasizing that it's more than just your course of rehab, but this is a lifestyle change. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's the thing. It's, it's long-term that I need to, to manage this. It's not, not a quick fix. And we know that it's a very recalcitrant condition. But if we manage it well with exercise therapy and, and load management, then patients tend to do really well. Awesome. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time out today and giving us all these clinical pearls. And everything as far as the paper and all the stuff that we discussed today will be in the show notes with today's show. So people can just click on it and, and get right to it if they want to read up on some of the papers that you mentioned. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Karen. Yeah, anytime. And everyone, thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.